welcome to Madeline Looks Back, a podcast dedicated to the female gaze. I'm Natalia. And I'm Veronica. And today we will be talking about Bernadine Evaristo's novel, Girl, Woman, Other. So this book won the Booker Prize last year in 2019. It actually tied with Margaret Atwood's The Testaments. And then this year in 2020, it won the British, British Book Awards Author of the Year and Fiction Book of the Year. And it also won Indie Book Award for Fiction this year in 2020. So many awards for this book. The author, Bernadine Avaristo, she is actually the fourth of eight children. So she comes from a pretty big family. She was born in Woolwich in Southeast London. I probably pronounced that wrong. And her mother is English and her father is Nigerian. He's like of mixed Nigerian and Brazilian heritage, which I thought was interesting because it seems like in the book, she spoke a lot to like experiences that were similar to her own, which I thought was pretty cool, but we can get into that. So her dad was a welder and he was a local labor counselor, which means he was basically a local representative for the labor party. And her mom was a school teacher and Bernadine herself, she has her PhD in creative writing from the University of London. And she studied speech and drama as well during, I think the equivalent of undergraduate. This novel charts the life of all these different women, girls, non-binary individuals, basically like a look at the Black experience in England. So like you mentioned, like her own life, there's a lot of people of mixed race backgrounds, children of immigrants. And if you haven't read it, definitely pause here, go request it from your public library and come back because we will spoil a lot. (laughs) We will spoil everything. What's your first take on the book? Like, how did you feel about it? My first kind of reaction to it is that I was seeing a lot of connections to the Harlem Renaissance. So basically this like period in America where Black writers were, you know, writing these books that were very like artistic, modernist, like these stream of consciousness narratives. And I was kind of surprised by, I mean, obviously just because she's an English author doesn't mean she can't study American literature, (laughs) Um, but I'm sure there's also like a lot of connections to like British literature history as well. But like I, right away, I thought of the book Passing by Nella Larson, which is about this black woman who passes as white. And I saw a lot of that in like some of these characters in the book who have this like complicated relationship where their parents kind of thought it would be easier to pass than it would be to kind of like embrace their own heritage. Yeah. And I think throughout the book, one of the things that really struck me was these generational differences in what it means to be a woman. And then later, you know, after feminism becomes more mainstream, what it means to be a feminist. So some of the narratives are from like the great grandparents or the great great grandparents of like the present day characters. So these are people who are living through like just after slavery, essentially, and have memories of slavery and their relationship with what it means to be like a black person or a person of color within society is pretty different than the younger generations in this book and one of the vibes I was also picking up on in terms of style was a lot of like the beat poets I got a lot of Ginsburg from this like there were a lot of lines that really reminded me of Howe specifically and then kind of like stream of consciousness I mean there's no there isn't a single quote mark in this entire novel I don't think and barely any punctuation right like it's just written in free verse like they start a thought and jump around and there's never like a comma. I like it. It's pretty refreshing because you get a good read on the characters. And I think that 
Bernadine does a really good job capturing these characters and giving them all an individual voice in in kind of a a sympathetic way, I'd say. Like she really captures what drives them and what their faults might be, but she's also she paints some of the characters in certain chapters in pretty unflattering light. So it's honest, but also kind of sympathetic. Yeah, that's so true. And I just before reading this, I read her other book, Blonde Roots, which was the selection at the Life's Library Book Club. And that's like such a completely different book. It's basically like a satirical take on slavery if it had been the Africans who had enslaved the Europeans. Oh, that sounds so interesting. And it's, yeah, it's super fascinating. Like, she writes these chapters, like, from the point of view of the slavers that, you know, really call back to, like, Heart of Darkness. So she really has this, like, way of, like, adapting the style to the narrative that's super interesting. But I do want to go back to what you were talking about of, like, the evolution of feminism, basically. I think that's one of the most interesting things in this book. One of the things that struck me in this book was this specific line. We start out with the character's name is Ama, I think is how it's pronounced. And she's like a playwright in London and she's been pretty unsuccessful. She's really been kind of on the fringe of playwriting because she has such an extreme, well, not an extreme view of feminism, but she just refuses to kind of dull down her art to a form that's more palatable by the mainstream. Mm -hmm. And Her daughter Yaz at one point is talking to her mom about like her idea of feminism. And she mentions this idea of being humanitarian. And this isn't like in terms of humanitarian aid. This is like the future of humanism. But this is from Amma's point of view, kind of describing how she sees the type of feminism that her daughter Yaz subscribes to. And it says, nor is the child she raised to be a feminist calling herself one lately. Feminism is so herd-like, Yaz told her. To be honest, even being a woman is passe these days. We had a non-binary activist at uni called Morgan Malenga who opened my eyes. I reckon we're all going to be non-binary in the future, neither male nor female, which are gendered performances anyway, which means your women's politics, mumsy, will become redundant. And by the way, I'm humanitarian, which is on a much higher plane than feminism. Do you even know what that is? That to me was like, this was pretty early in the book, but that was the first moment where I was like, okay, so this book is definitely going to be handling some of like these different ideas of feminism and these waves. And what struck me most about this kind of uppity stance about humanism is, well, first of all, and today in the present time that we're all living in, we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. The reason that we have things like feminism and gay rights is because those are the groups of people who are oppressed by people who have more power being like heteronormative ideas of what society should be like or like men who tend to have higher pay and better positions than women along with all of the other things that go along with that so I kind of thought of humanism as being a great idea like yeah we should all be equal and it kind of has like this nice non-binaryness to it like gay rights it's binary right because it's like people who are gay and then people who are not gay And then feminism, too, is pretty binary and leaves people out of it because it's kind of this idea of, like, women versus men Mm -hmm. and, like, the power indifference there. And humanism is – it's a nice concept because it is – it does kind of reject that Western binary ideal and kind of just encompass everything and put everyone on the same plane. But the thing is, it kind of – you need more equality to begin with until you can get there because you – in my mind, you have to fight to get everybody – like into the same playing fields before you can start saying everyone here is equal. Yeah. Well said. Thank you. That 
kind of connects well with one of the articles that I wanted to talk about today. And it's from this like selection of essays called The Transgender Studies Reader by Susan Stryker and Stephen Whittle. And Susan Stryker talks about transgender studies. Well, basically, first of all, like she talks about the reason that people can be like uncomfortable with transgender individuals because they kind of challenge this idea that, as she says, bodily sex, gender, role, and subjective identity relate to each other as a mirror, kind of that binary that you were talking about. And it's been difficult in the past for like feminist theory in academia to kind of accept transgender studies as part of it. But Stryker argues against that. And she basically talks about how transgender studies can't just be about the point of view of scholars, but of individuals, which I think that that's something that this book does really well, is incorporating individual stories. And so she talks about this as this methodology of incorporating historical content that has kind of been buried in the past as a practice of what Foucault called insurrection of subjected knowledges. So just kind of like giving voice to these knowledges that have been ignored in the past. And Stryker says that marginalized knowledge needs to be combined with erudite scholarship within the field of transgender studies to allow the field to tell new stories about things that many of us thought we already knew, recontextualizing gender normativity and exposing that it's a cultural construct. And so she talks about this like really important work that transgender studies does in breaking out of that binary and in bringing in these stories. And like you talked about gay rights and, you know, like, Stonewall, like that was a transgender woman who started that and like kind of this importance of rolling in these stories to understand feminism in a more complex way. That actually pairs really nicely with it has a lot of similarities with some of the reading I did, which was I read this paper. It's called Building on, quote unquote, the edge of each other's battles a feminist of color multidimensional lens. And the authors are the Santa Cruz Feminist of Color Collective. I wasn't actually able to dig up the individual authors in it. I didn't try super hard, but the fact that they didn't cite it on a website somewhere as being their individual names kind of told me that maybe they didn't want to be thought of as individuals, but like a collective Mm -hmm. voice for women of color. So I just like, I didn't try that hard, but maybe (laughs) I'm reading too much into it. But one of the things that struck me that resonates with what you were saying, but but also resonates with like this intergenerational structure of this book mm-hmm. is throughout this paper, they're talking about this play, which the name of it, I'm blanking, but they're, the play actually has a lot of similarities as this novel in that it's like different women of color from different backgrounds, whether that's like South America or Africa and like mixed race people and kind of like an intergenerational space. So like the play that this women's collective is picking apart is it has a lot of similarities with this novel, which I think is why it resonates so much. But in this one part of the paper, this is actually reading of Gloria Anzaldueya. I'm sorry, everyone. Um, But it's kind of arguing against like Eurocentricism and dichotomous hierarchies, which is what we were just talking about, like that black white idea. And then the idea of having, you know, people in power and then people who aren't in power. And in this paper, they write a woman of color radical political project calls attention to the spaces of resistance that have been hidden by Eurocentric modernity and its discourses. Thinking through the borderlands bridges dichotomies by seeing from a double or third space perspective rooted in local histories. Building on Anzaldueya, Lagones explains, the emphasis is on maintaining multiplicity at the point of reduction. 
This calls for coalitional efforts found in the work of feminists of color and requires dwelling in resistance with specific attention to the day-to-day interweavings of social relations or the intimate everyday resistant interactions to the colonial difference. Basically, this entire paper is talking about like, it's talking about how you can look back at past histories and look at like the spaces in the histories. And if you do kind of like a retrofitted reading of current rights to older histories, you can see spaces in there for like women of color bodies or transgender bodies or bodies that are like left out of the readings because they have like either a heteronormative or colonial or like white centric reading to them when they're written. Mm -hmm. In introducing this paper, the authors talk about, basically they say, we argue that the formation of women of color resonates in feminist and philosophical debates as a critique of an alternative to oppressive canonical forms of knowledge that restrict interventions by women, people of color and queers in the academy and beyond. And then they say that often the complications of history, particularly of race and gender structures, are unseen and unheard due to what Perez names the white colonial heteronormative gaze. And I guess just as an example of that, kind of when I think of feminism, or until pretty recently when I thought of feminism, I thought a lot about like Susan B. Anthony Mm -hmm. and women's rights to vote in the United States. And she was just like an old white woman. And one of the things that I really sought to do in getting ready for this podcast was looking at like women of color and their view on feminism because it does seem like those are the voices that have been left out of the mainstream movement like we get kind of like the civil rights movement which has like that element of gender to it like women's rights and then it also has an element of like race to it like bringing people of different races and backgrounds and colors like to an equal playing field with the white dominated society in the United States, I guess. But it kind of leaves all these spaces out informing those dichotomies, which we love to do in Western thought. And it it seems like in this paper, the authors are really arguing, arguing that women of color are kind of one of those like borderland areas that's just been left out of the discourse. And I think that it's fair to argue that like trans rights have also been left out of that. And there are probably whole other hosts of rights that have been left out of this discourse that we haven't even thought of. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's like the real work of feminist scholarship is that it kind of has to be in favor of social justice. Like it has to be to create an equal playing field for everyone. So when you're excluding someone, then you're just not doing that. Like you're not achieving that. And of course, the character that really embodies that in the novel is... And I know I'm going to say it wrong. It's the storyline of Dom and Nziga. Yeah, basically, Dominique, like, when we meet her, she's just, like, this super fierce black feminist in England, falls in love with this American woman, goes back to America with her to live in this kind of, like, commune that is womanist. So, you know, no no masculine thought, no men, like, no to the patriarchy, but to an absolute extreme. And in a way that doesn't really end up serving social justice in any way, you know, as we figure out pretty quickly, Nzinga is abusing Dominique. You know, she's an abusive partner. She tries to control her life. She cuts her off from her friends and family. She basically doesn't let her even leave the house. And so it's just like, just like exposing how a 
feminism based on exclusion isn't really going to be a feminism that brings about social justice, that makes people feel welcome. And she is just kind of using it, and Zynga specifically, is just using it as a way to control people. I love that you brought that up because the first thing I thought of when in the book in Zynga and Dominique, right? Yeah. There's so many characters in this book, you guys. And I'm bad with names, as we already know from previous (laughs) podcasts. But in Zynga, specifically approaches this as like getting away from men and away from the problems of society and having their own little utopia somewhere with other women. And it becomes pretty clear once they get there that there are a whole lot of other underlying issues and that she like hates the other women and doesn't trust them. And there's a lot going on there. But I remember just thinking when I read this, I was like, is removing yourself from the situation really solving anything? Shouldn't the answer be to like fight within the system to an extent for change instead of just like removing yourself and basically bowing out of it and saying it's not my problem anymore. And I thought it was pretty funny because in this paper that I read with the Santa Cruz Feminists of Color Collective, they say at the very beginning, we began writing together in the early years of the new millennium on Ohlone Island, where redwood forests meet the Pacific coast. We came together from different disciplines around our commitments to radical transformation and the project of mapping feminist of color trajectories and ancestries of thought. And I read that and I was like, oh no, <laughs> I hope this isn't like what happened in the book. Um, but it it wasn't. And they really deal a lot I'm going to bring this full circle, I promise. They deal a lot with this idea of intersectionality, which is basically saying that there should be like nuance in discussions about political power and identity, and it shouldn't just be reduced to like race and gender. And that like there's there's more to it than that. So they say here, the complexities include identifying as Afro-Latinas, passing as straight, as well as Chicanas and Filipinas who share a Spanish colonial history. All of these identities or subjectivities imply different kinds of relationships to colonial states and multiple communities across borders of race, class, gender, sexuality, and nation. The distinctions embodied within queer Latinas made visible through the monologues and short documentaries, this is again speaking to the play that they're looking at, speak to the complexities and shifting formation of women of color. We are not the same. We are rooted in particularities, and that is our greatest strength. This is how we identify ourselves to one another. So they're making this really strong argument that even though they all, like all these women in this collective have a relationship with colonialism and they're women of color, that's how they identify and that brings them together, they still can't be reduced to just like, oh, we all came from places that were colonized to an extent or like, oh, we're all women of color. Like there are still subtle different relationships within there that are important and that reductionism of like this kind of mainstream reading of intersectionality is they're just like raging against it basically, which I think is fair. Yeah. And I think that that's really the, the beauty of this book is that by bringing together all these different ideas on what feminism is, it shows that complexity and while they can kind of all have this kinship, which I'll talk about more with the other article that I brought as like black feminists, like they are still displaying like all the beautiful complexity within that. And what you were just saying was making me think of this quote from the book. Um, This is when Yaz goes to college and, you know, she kind of has this very like woke, diverse group of friends. And then they make friends with this girl named Courtney, who's white. She's kind of from the English countryside and she becomes friends with them. And uh, Yaz says to her, 
people won't see you as just another woman anymore, but as a white woman who hangs out with brownies, and you'll lose a bit of your privilege. You should still check it, though. Have you heard the expression, check your privilege, babe? Courtney replied that seeing as Yaz is the daughter of a professor and a very well-known theater director, she's hardly underprivileged herself. Whereas she, Courtney, comes from a really poor community where it's normal to be working in a factory at 16 and have your first child as a single mother at 17, and that her father's farm is effectively owned by the bank. Yes, but I'm black, Courts, which makes me more oppressed than anyone who isn't, is Yaz's reply. Courtney replied that Roxanne Gay warned against the idea of playing Privilege Olympics, and wrote in Bad Feminist that privilege is relative and contextual. And I agree, Yaz, I mean, where will it all end? Is Obama less privileged than a white hillbilly growing up in a trailer park with a junkie single mother and a jailbird father? Is a severely disabled person more privileged than a Syrian asylum seeker who's been tortured? Roxanne argues that we have to find a new discourse for discussing inequality. Yaz doesn't know what to say. When did Court read Roxanne Gay, who's amazing? Was this a student outwitting the master moment? Hashtag white girl trumps black girl. And I just really love that moment of Courtney introducing complexity to the conversation and avoiding those privilege Olympics and just, you know, like you were saying, instead, let's like talk about the complexities of our situations and understanding how they relate, but also how they're different. I love that moment, too, because like Courtney seems to specifically from Yaz when she joined that group she got like a lot of shit because she was the only person who wasn't a person of color Mm -hmm. and I think that in the same way that people of any race or group tend to have specific preconceptions of what people in other groups are like it was an interesting reversal because Yaz in this instance was the one like bringing all of those preconceptions and judgments and then Courtney kind of turned out to be Maybe not initially. We don't really know how, like, quote-unquote woke she was before she started hanging out with this group. But I just love that it's kind of, like, another subversion of, like, another kind of trope in this book. Yeah, absolutely. So the other article that I wanted to talk about was um, by Joanne Annam Ado. And it's called Activist Mothers Maybe, Sisters Surely, Black British Feminism, Absence, and Transformation. And... The way that she puts together this article is really cool. Um, She basically says, This article weaves the autobiographical, the discursive, and the historical, a methodology that highlighting the personal simultaneously attempts to counter indifference while testifying to the founding of Black British feminism as a movement rooted in caring and kinship. So the way it's put together is very parallel to Girl, Woman, Other. I wouldn't be surprised if Bernadine ever still read this because it takes these like first person stories of women, for example, talking about their experiences in academia, which we can talk about, Carol, and putting together an idea of Black British feminism from both like theory and academia, but also personal stories and oral histories. But she says it bears underscoring that Black British feminism emerged from a variegated feminism with roots included African, Caribbean, and South Asian, for example, and correspondingly roots linked to transnationalism. So that kind of connects to what you were talking about, about colonialism. And we see that in the book again as well. Like we have women who are from Caribbean descent, from African descent, and all their points of view form part of Black British feminism. So basically she talks about black feminists of her generation creating for her it's in academia specifically like workshops for you know younger academics and scholars 
when they themselves didn't have this opportunity in academia to kind of learn from other black women about feminism and just the importance of creating this sense of like she calls it other mothering (laughs) so this comes up from communities like um, the transgender community when people who don't have their own family kind of find these um, selected families where they can be kind of nurtured and Amin Addo talks about kind of that being the ideal model for black feminism kind of nurturing each other like that so she talks about in an age when black activists commonly greeted each other by kinship terms such as brother and sister as meaningful to black feminists i treat the relationships engendered within feminism as kinship thus kinship is deployed here not in terms of blood or marital ties but to include people chosen consensually as family or to be connected with that is women figuratively thrown into the same boat fashioned distinctively though not exclusively by racism i stress here the affiliative structure of this kinship system it's springing from a social and political kinship formed by shared conditions of a struggle against racism and a struggle for a pluralistic community of belonging it sounds exactly like what this book does you know all these women have really different points of view really different definitions of feminism but they're all connected to each other whether through familial ties or friendship or acquaintanceship and they kind of just create this sense of kinship that I thought was really cool yeah I completely agree I mean we see a few times in the novel whether it's so Ama kind of the character who starts all of this off in the narrative her daughter Yaz has all of these godmothers that Ama has like kind of designated to her and godfathers she has multiple and it kind of that's kind of the first embodiment I think of of this community but all of these characters lives touch each other's lives either directly or indirectly like they're all linked together in this sort of kind of like spread out community of women of color and then we also see the school teacher Mrs. King she kind of helps nurture Carol who ends up being like the one sort of stereotypically powerful woman of color in all of this. She ends up being like a vice president of a bank and like works her butt off to get there. But without that sort of mentoring and nurturing from one specific teacher who sort of like took her under her wing, she might not have gotten there. And that's the example that came most forcibly to mind when you were when you were talking about that. Yeah, definitely. And even you know, I think Yaz says this at one point where she kind of tells her mom, like, well, if you hadn't, like, encouraged, like, or she's kind of, like, trying to get her mom to let her go to a concert when she's really young, and she's like, well, you shouldn't have taught me to be, like, this kind of free woman who makes my own decisions, but, like, you know, that's exactly what Emma does is, like, create this environment where Yaz can, like, discover her own type of feminism, but without that support, she wouldn't have been able to do that, and yeah, the same thing with Carol's character. And she was really interesting because, yeah, she takes this route of going to school and just, you know, she struggles her first year. She has a really hard time and her character made me think a lot about Invisible Man. So this is from when she starts school and she says people walked around her or looked through her or was she imagining it? 
Did she exist or was she an illusion? If I strip off and streak across the quadrangle, will anyone notice me, other than the porters who will no doubt call the feds, an excuse they've been waiting for ever since they first set eyes on her when a student sidled up after a lecture to ask for some ecstasy? Carol almost texted her mother to say she was on the next train home. And yeah, that kind of her feeling of invisibility made me think a lot of uh, Ralph Ellison. And it's her mother as well, you know, her mother kind of starts telling her, like, you think if Oprah had given up, like, she would have become <laughs> the queen of TV, and, you know, she kind of, even though she and her mother don't really know how to communicate with each other, she does push her to go back. Like she, you said, she becomes this, like, really high-powered, you know, career woman, um, but we do see from her mom's point of view that she just sees her daughter, like, assimilating to the point where she, like, she doesn't wear her natural hair you know, she kind of just has to do what she think is gonna make people accept her. And she's right, it does make it easier for people to accept her when her hair is straight, and she's dressed like a white woman, essentially. Right. And a big part of that, too, is that her husband, Freddie, is white. And that's sort of what helps Carol assimilate, like, in college and have a group of friends. So it is kind of this odd, you know, like, she, she becomes successful, but kind of at the cost of sort of having to abandon her heritage, at least for a while. And yeah, like through her college experience, she discovers there's this one part where she was like, oh, I like never realized that walks for leisure were a thing. Like mm-hmm. I didn't come from a place where you would just want to walk around because it wasn't an enjoyable place to be. So yeah, that is also kind of one of the conflicts in this book is that as people like assimilate into British society based on, you know, however many generations and they are to when their family emigrated. It's, it is this tension between the older generations of, you know, like my children have lost their way to then the younger generations, not really understanding that. And also just basically saying like, this is what I have to do to survive here. Like this is what I have to do to be successful. Yeah, and her her story is really difficult because there is also that horrible assault that she suffers when she's 13, and, you know, she's gang-raped, and she doesn't feel like she can talk to anyone about it because she has seen girls in her situation be blamed for what happened to them. And so her way of coping is, you know, instead of talking to her mom, she just retreats, and so her mom just thinks that she's being a moody teenager, and there's just kind of this breakdown of communication, and she just runs away from it like as far in the other direction as she can by focusing on her career by focusing on being the best but it's you know not only is it difficult for her because of the racism that she endures but then this trauma that she doesn't feel like she can talk to anyone about yeah and it's interesting too because her mom like experienced a similar but different sexual trauma like trying to get money to start her cleaning business up Uh, she ended up sleeping with a priest which was like in some ways pretty similar to like sort of a a rape type situation or sexual assault and it's it's interesting too when you see these moments in the narrative where characters could probably really relate to each other but because of like the dynamics of their relationship they're sort of missing each other even though they do have so much common ground yeah and I think we see that with Shirley King as well the teacher who she tries so like she starts out being like really excited about you know making a difference for young girls of color by like nurturing them and she you know kind of finds herself fighting against this school system that is just about standardized testing and not about nurturing students at all and becomes really disillusioned and then when she goes to visit her mom she's like 
complains about it so much and her mom sees it as you know I came here as an immigrant struggled so hard and you have a job and a wonderful husband and you know you kind of don't have to worry about these struggles that I had to worry about and so it's interesting to see both of their perspectives yeah because at first you really identify with Cheryl I think well at least I did or Shirley uh Shirley yeah Shirley I was like wow yeah that is really difficult like you've become disillusioned like I see your story but then right after that you hear her mom's story and her mom's struggle because in like from Shirley's point of view her parents both worked for the state they were part of like kind of mass transit essentially they worked for mass transit so they ended up with really good pensions and Shirley's just like oh my parents have it so easy you know they went back to I think it's Barbados I want to say um And they retired, they have this beautiful beach home, and their life is just like this beautiful vacation. And then you see her mom's point of view, where every year her daughter comes down, and she only wears white and like refuses to help out around the house because she treats it like she's on vacation. It's like her mental unwinding. And you see that a lot of times throughout the book, where you get one character's perspective, and then another character's perspective will either challenge or subvert that. And I think that that's sort of like initially when I was talking about how the author like really compassionately but also honestly handles these characters I think that's part of what allows her to do it is because within this like free verse stream of consciousness style she lets every character say their part but then through their relationships with other characters you get a fuller understanding of the story yeah and like she like allows both versions to be valid like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's true that, you know, Shirley's parents struggled in a different way, but that doesn't mean that she isn't struggling in her own way. Right. And I really love that about it. Her mom is winsome, right? She's the one who has the book club. Yes. I loved the book club conversation. It was so good. There's like this part when Winsome is walking home and she's like, I, I don't think she went to university. She wasn't like a quote unquote educated woman, but she was starting to read all these books and you see these points where like these other women in the book club are listing off famous authors. And when someone's like writing them down to go check out the books from the library, but she's walking home and it's this beautiful moment. Cause she's like trying to figure out how to research things so she can come back with better like arguments for the debates next time, like mm-hmm. better facts to substantiate her claims. And I thought that was just amazing. I agree. I highlighted that part as well. And she says, her favorite poetry book is called I is a Long-Memoried Woman by a Wyanese lady called Grace Nichols. We the women whose praises go unsung, whose voices go unheard. And I think that makes like a really subtle commentary on like the other women are talking about these like canon white men writers, but that doesn't mean that this beautiful poem from a Wyanese woman like isn't equally important. And I think that that goes back to like bringing in those different not just like academic thought, but bringing in those stories because they add richness to to academia. Absolutely. And even within the book club moment, there's sort of this debate in the book club where, you know, one of the characters says that we should only really consider things to be like literature books that are said by like critics and experts to be good we should use critics and experts and what they think in our interpretation and in our reading to determine like what is and is not like a good book or a good poem. And then one of the other ladies in the book club says that, you know, I think that regardless of who wrote it, if it resonates with you, that's the most important part because that means that it's like doing its job as, as written word. And that brought me back a lot to college when we would talk about this, um, when we would like debate the canon and talk about what is and what is not literature, what is and what is not art and 
so many times you see that like the canon is just something that's decided by white men who have a very specific point of view that's usually very old white men and it doesn't leave a lot of space for these other voices that are just as important or who have perspectives that are just as valuable yeah I mean that you know absolutely my experience in grad school though I had a really good grad school experience like it wasn't often that I was reading works by women like me you know I wasn't reading a work by a Latina bicultural immigrant and if I wanted to bring that to the conversation then I had to do that in my work and I had to propose that to a conference you know and I think it's really important to have room in academia to do that so that we can have that diversity of voices. Absolutely. There was one passage that I really enjoyed that I just want to read out. It's about Carol and she's kind of like obsessively driven by her desire to succeed as like a VP of a bank. She's obsessive both about her work and about running. And this is what she says. The only morning she doesn't run is when she's doubled over with period pains for which she takes extra strength painkillers in order to haul herself to work or risk being accused of pulling a monthly sickie. Busted. Yes, you are a woman. She even contemplated having her womb taken out to eliminate periods altogether, which would surely be her greatest possible career move, a tactical hysterectomy for ambitious women with menstrual problems. And that just really... I was just like, wow, it embodies so much like within this one sentiment about the way that, especially in like a white male dominated field like banking, you'd be forced to conform to like other people's ideas of success and what you should be. And just the fact of her being a woman is like this inherent disadvantage. Yeah, I love that one as well. And just as you were reading it, I was thinking of Fleabag and the Woman in Business Award. Yes. And that whole spiel about like, oh, menopause is the best thing that could happen to a woman in business. Yeah, because then you're just like another person. Yeah, and the unfairness (laughs) of that. And I also like what I really love about what you read too is the use of language and the use of slang, like a monthly sicky. She uses vernacular so well in this book and how you know how Mm -hmm. Yaz is you know she just has that millennial slang that we really recognize and it just makes the story like really rich absolutely it reminds me a little bit of Juno Diaz even though we now have conflicted (sighs) feelings about Juno Diaz yeah but absolutely like um, (laughs) he does use language really well (laughs) yeah so for uh, I mentioned that for Life's Library book club we read Blonde Roots and we also in like the the discord room where we were talking about the books there was also a section to talk about this book for those who had read it and one thing that a lot of people brought up like an issue with is in the Megan Morgan chapter that like charts her transition into affirming themselves as a non-binary individual a lot of people had an issue with the chapter being named Megan slash Morgan because mm-hmm. it brings up this issue of dead naming which for is you know for trans individuals using their given name that they no longer use and you know this can be uh, challenging for them because it it could bring attention to their transition when they don't want to talk about it it could be seen as like just kind of demeaning the fact that they have affirmed their own identity with a new name Mm. And so I, I understand the point of view of like Bernadine is telling the story of their transition. And so in the beginning of the story, they are still being referred to by their given name. But, you know, I, I understand that point of view also where the chapter could have just been called Morgan because that is their identity. Yeah, I understand both sides. I guess I didn't know about dead naming. This is new to me. But yeah, in my reading, it was that it was the story of their transition as well. 
but that is a really good and valid point. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, obviously, like, like everyone, trans individuals want to see stories about themselves that are not only about their transition in the same mm-hmm. way that, you know, Black women want to see stories that are not just about Black struggle and racism, but also about Black joy. But, you know, obviously, it's a really interesting chapter, and it brings into play all these things we've been talking about, about including transgender studies in feminist thought. So it definitely has a purpose, but I also understand the the little bit of resistance to it. Yeah, absolutely. I guess we should end with kind of how the book ends, because I think it really sums everything up really well. Yeah, so I guess we should start by introducing Hattie. Hattie is actually Morgan's grandmother. She owns this farm in part of England. I'm I'm forgetting where exactly it's based, but it's basically been in the family for a really long time. And at one point in Hattie's life, she had a child. And it was like, she was super young. She like wasn't even close to being married yet. And her mom, who her mother had a similar experience, refused to let that child go. She was like protecting the child, protecting Hattie. But Hattie's dad had a really different view on it. Like he thought the child would hold her back. So he got rid of that child. And like no one in the family ever knew that Hattie, who's like the matriarch of the family, it's now this huge family. And then when they have get togethers over the holidays, it's like, it seems like 30, 40 people maybe are all on this farm together. Nobody ever knew that Hattie had like another daughter before her one daughter that she does have. She has like a daughter and a son. And throughout the book, we kind of get like these random snippets of this woman. Her name is Penelope. She's a white woman, or so we think. And I was like, this this is like this random white voice in with all of these women of color. Like, what is going on here? So Penelope is kind of like this kind of like she's a racist school teacher. There's no two ways about this. She's like not cool with people of color. Black kids hates them. Um, At one point, she employs Carol's mom, actually, to clean her house. And Carol's mom is like, I'm not even going to try to talk to this woman because this woman like clearly doesn't want me to be friends with her. All this time, Hattie's first daughter, or no, I'm sorry, not her first daughter, like her legitimate daughter within marriage, Ada May, it like always bothered her that she didn't know who her grandfather was. So Hattie gets a test done, like a, like a lineage test, like 23andMe kind of a situation. And in all of this, they're just, like, trying to figure out, they're trying to find, like, people who were related to, like, that distant sailor who just kind of, like, had a kid and then, like, left. But then Penelope, her parents, her who we find out are her adoptive parents, tell her on her 16th birthday that she's adopted. And they do it in this, like, really kind of heartless way. And they don't, like, reassure her that they love her or anything. Like, they never tell her that they love her. So she has, like, a decent but loveless, like, home life. So finally, like, toward the end of the book, like, in the timeline, she just kind of on a whim decides to get a test to see, like, who her relatives are to see if she could find her parents and figure out why they abandoned her. And it turns out that Penelope's mom is actually Hattie. So Penelope has this kind of reckoning in the end where she realizes that even though like this, her entire life, she's been thinking of black people as like other and like beneath her and against her. She realizes in like this one moment where she pretty much has a breakdown that she actually 
is a, like a black woman and she like is correcting herself on this car trip out to see Hattie to meet her birth mom. And the whole time she's like, like at first, like this guy pulls up in the taxi and he's black and she's like, she's like hesitates and she's like, who the fuck knows? Like maybe this is like fifth or sixth cousin. Like, I don't know. Like it completely changes her perspective. So she takes the taxi out to meet Hattie and the whole time she's kind of reckoning with like, instead of thinking of, people of color as being other to her she is now trying to accept herself as one of them and they have this kind of beautiful moment at the end where like Hattie and her just embrace and it's just kind of like a coming full circle of the story yeah and I think in that moment for her it's like more important to to find her family than anything else Mm -hmm. so I kind of want to leave us with this great like conversation that Emma and Dom have like after the opening for Emma's play. Please do. Because I think it sums everything up pretty well. So basically, Dominique is complaining a little bit about how she's receiving like some pushback from trans individuals on Twitter and stuff like that. And she calls them troublemakers. And Emma says, Dom, you're so funny. Troublemakers? Protest? Remind you of anyone? We'd have given people hell on Twitter if it was around when we were young. Can you imagine? And the trans community is entitled to fight for their rights. You need to be more open-minded on that score, or you'll risk becoming irrelevant. I've had to completely readjust my thinking having a woke daughter who likes nothing more than to educate me in any case. I'm sure plenty of these young feministas heroin worship you over there. I bet you're a babe magnet. I'm not a babe to them, Ams. I'm an old-school has-been who's part of the problem. They don't respect me. You need to talk to them, Dom, and we should celebrate that many more women are reconfiguring feminism and that grassroots activism is spreading like wildfire and millions of women are waking up to the possibility of taking ownership of our world as fully entitled human beings. How can we argue with that? I love that. Nothing left to say about that. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, on that note, what have you been reading or watching or interacting with that's been making you happy? I have been really enjoying... I don't know if you follow her on Instagram, Amanda Montel. I do not. Who is a linguist, and she wrote a book called Word Slut about, like, decolonizing language, basically. And she does these great, like, short videos kind of breaking down these myths about language. For example, she talks about how people use, like the distinction between standard language and non-standard language to kind of alienate people or demean people or she'll do like etymology on curse words or insults she just does really cool videos on language and how it can be used against minorities and how we need to learn about that to be able to kind of fight against that I suppose that sounds amazing yeah I think you would enjoy it how about you one thing that's been making me happy is that I now go on two to four walks every single day um because I am temporarily outside of New York City and have that capacity without interacting with like a hundred people within a six foot radius that we're supposed to be avoiding. So yeah, just being able to like step outside of the front door and walk and not even necessarily wear a mask because it's so easy to social distance and because there are only ever like two other people in the park at any time is like a revelation. It's really improved my quality of life. (laughs) That's amazing. Um, There's so much to be said for it, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, I just really, I feel for people who, like, live in cities their whole life and 
like don't ever really have the chance to interact with nature or don't seek it out because they've never had it because it's such an important thing. Like there have been so many studies about what nature can do for your well-being and your health. There have even been studies that show if you go outside for 20 minutes a day into like a park or something that's not like surrounded by roads and stuff, something where you can feel like you're a little bit away, you're, it helps your immune system and you're a lot less likely to get sick. So it seems like it's hard with social distancing because of course a lot of people are seeking out nature right now. But if you have that ability, definitely while sports aren't happening and while some TV shows are on hiatuses because they can't get into production, like take all that time you'd normally be spending going to the theater or eating at a restaurant or going to a concert or watching TV and just like go for a walk outside. And that's free. It is free. It's fantastic. And you get vitamin D, which is great. Yes. All good things. Bring a book. <laughs> yes. Read it under a tree. <laughs> that is the best way to read. Well, thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. Thank you, everyone, for joining us this month. Please be sure to follow us on Instagram at Madeline Looks Back. Rate us on iTunes. Subscribe. Let us know what you think of the show. Send us an email if we're getting things wrong, leaving things out. We'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. And we'll see you next month. This podcast is produced and edited by its hosts. The music is Lost Souls by Portrayal. You can find a list of all the articles and theorists we cited today in the show notes. 